Welcome to Business Dharma, conversations about the future of business at the intersection of people, planet, profit, and spirituality for leaders, innovators, visionaries, and changemakers. We explore ideas and build the bridge to the future. Belgard is the president and CEO of the FHQ e-commerce LTT, a wholly owned First Nation company that pursues opportunities in the banking and gaming sector. From 2006 to 2021, Edmund served as the Tribal Council Chief and CEO of the File Hills Capel Tribal Council. Over the course of these 15 years in leadership, he worked together with their 11 member nations to develop and expand the Tribal Council's economic interests build capacity and governance, strengthen institutions, generate employment and education opportunities, and improve overall community well-being while also advancing inherent treaty rights. Prior to his time as Tribal Council Chief and CEO, he served as the President and CEO of the Saskatchewan Indian Gaming Authority. Edmund is recognized as a leader in Indigenous development and as an influential bridge builder focused on reconciliation. He possesses more than 20 years of practical expertise in governance, strategy, relations, negotiations, business development, community engagement, partnerships, operations, and capital finance. In this episode, Edmund shares his story, vision, and life experience, using his words and wisdom to encourage us to consider the role that dignity, purpose, and responsibility plays in each of our lives. Edmund shows us that teachers are everywhere and that who we be in this world is directly linked to what we believe in ourselves and our ability to see beyond our current limitations. Edmund has been an important friend, client, and teacher in my life, and I'm honored to share his words of wisdom with you. Welcome to Business Dharma. It's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here, Kimberly. Thanks for having me. How would you introduce yourself to those that don't know you? Well, my name is Edmund Belgard. My traditional Anishinaabe name is Ogamal Kanuigan, which is translated into English as King Eagle Feather. I am from Little Black Bear First Nation. My parents are Albert and Verna Belgard. Um, both uh, incredible parents. They both passed on, but they have uh, certainly made a lasting impression and instilled so much in me, both individually as mom and dad and uh, collectively as, as parents. I am a husband to my beautiful wife, Denise. I'm father to Devereaux, Dylan, Edmund Jr., and Hunter. Um, three sons, and finally a daughter. I would introduce myself as a leader, a peacemaker, and a bridge builder. And can you share a little bit? You've got an incredible story, how you've shifted, morphed, mold, and worn those hats in a number of vocational roles. Well, I, I think some of the foundation is going back to my parents. And uh, I was a bit of a uh, mama's boy 
growing up as as a little guy. Spent uh, um, my early days always at my mom's side, and uh, she was she was probably my first teacher, and she instilled in me that self confidence, the uh, um, all the all the purpose that that uh, I bring. She's probably got the most to do with those foundations. My late father, Albert, was uh, a leader and a teacher in, in his early days. He was one of the first First Nation teachers in, in Saskatchewan in, in the late 50s. And uh, um, some of the on-reserve teaching and, and just the state of education that was funded by then Indian Affairs um, left him so frustrated and he could see the, the differences in general society and, and public education and what was what was being offered in on-reserve schools. So he turned to politics and in the 70s, early 70s, uh, there was a political movement in response to the white paper of Pierre Elliott Trudeau as prime minister and Jean Chrétien as, as the Indian Affairs Minister. And that um, was his interest in politics, in addressing education. So when he passed away in 1979, he was the chief of the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations, the FSIN. So he was a teacher and then a collective leader, servant leader. Um, and those, those two, um, mom and dad, like I said, probably set the foundation and uh, sets set the path for for my life and uh, that's that's led me to where i am today in terms of positions uh, um play went to uh, school went to Cowes' first nation and residential school graduated from there in 1989 was playing some junior hockey a little bit in the Saskatchewan junior hockey league and then spent a couple years playing in the manitoba junior hockey league out of winnipeg for a First Nation-owned franchise. And that was that was an incredible experience, but I felt like hockey wasn't uh, going to be uh, um, my career path. So I decided with two years of junior eligibility left to take a break from hockey, move home, and I started a, a business administration program offered by the Saskatchewan Indian Institute of Technologies and by SIAS, now Saskatchewan Polytechnic, and graduated from there. Part of the uh, um, break in between first and, and second year was an eight-week practicum. There was a 12-week break, so I started uh, my career with the Royal Bank of Canada. From there, I went to Casino Regina. They were a new... Uh, a new venture that resulted from the White Bear First Nations in 1993, asserting their jurisdiction and uh, the overriding power that uh, drew me in was the lure of being able to work with 50% of a significant workforce and not only being able to work with them, but being given the opportunity to advance to a position of leadership and a direct path 
that was, wasn't going to take long. It was going to be an intense 18 to 24 month period. So that, that spoke to me. So I did that. I went for training with the uh, casinos, uh, international, um, know-how partner, Holland Casinos International, who operates, uh, I believe, eight casinos in, in the country of, of the Netherlands and in Holland. So did some training for five weeks, intensive operations training out there, and uh, took on the challenge. Not long after, Saskatchewan Indian Gaming Authority opened its first casinos in Saskatchewan. They originally started with four, and they too were, were also looking for young professional First Nations uh, uh, workforce. So the offer was was made and, and I, I had declined becoming um, assistant casino manager of the day. Things things happened where in, in the following year, I just didn't get get a good feeling after after a meeting and I thought it was time to move on. So I phoned the then SEGA CEO and, and said, I, I think it's time that... Uh, I, I come and work for you if the if the offer is still open. And the uh, CEO response was, uh, again, it was exciting for me because he he said, "Well, yes, the job is still open, and uh, you know you've got some great experience now at Casino Regina. Uh, would would you be a general manager? We need a general manager at." Uh, um, Three of our four casinos, we we don't we have a succession plan, and uh, um, we'll give you the option. So I I chose the option closest to home, closest to to me at Treaty Four, and that was the Painted Hand Casino in Yorkton. You know, within within a few weeks, I was the general manager of Painted Hand Casino in Yorkton. Fast forward a few years, and it was an eye opening experience for me when they offered me the uh, permanent CEO position and we turned SEGA around and uh, um, we expanded to uh, new markets in, in my tenure as CEO. But the thing that I'm proudest of in that achievement is um, eventually SEGA was recognized by the Conference Board of Canada as the best governed company nonprofit company in all of Canada publicly. And that was that was a lot of work. That was a lot of steep learning on corporate governance, on board governance. Um, in the space of, of a couple of years, we we did a strategic plan. We developed over 400 corporate policies. We um, put in place a very strong internal control structure. And we really were the leading edge of corporate governance. And it was in response to a crisis. So we went from very uh, weak levels of, of corporate governance and uh, um, we went to the polar opposite and we were leading the corporate governance charges and um, in an era where casino gaming was new, commercial gaming was still new in Canada, I think we had to earn back the trust of, of the customers and the community, but we also had to earn the trust back of our own people that we were collectively working for. So there's a humility in when you're speaking, and I'm hearing that and that you're giving a lot of credit and absolutely the policy, the structure, 
getting the right people on the team. You also had the burning platform for change, which as we know is huge. But Ed, I think you're selling yourself a little short in that you can't just put any leader in to shift a ship. What was it about you specifically that you're able to get people to move in the direction that you needed? Well, I think timing plays a part and uh, career shifts for, for me have always felt right. So if things didn't feel right, um, I wouldn't take the leap or I wouldn't make the change. Um, so timing for me was was excellent in, in this regard that uh, my banking backgrounds, my business education, um, my training had all sort of led me to what was needed, what's what the crisis needed. And I, I think that's that's what a, a fresh young face sometimes brings. Um, I, I didn't uh, always have the experience. I didn't always have the answer. But uh, what, I, what I did have was a good head on my shoulders, some good training, and some of those very basic guiding principles, not only for running a business, but just conducting yourself as, as an individual. And I, I think those are, are the things that, that served me well in, in that circumstance. And we, we didn't want to develop a bunker mentality. We were in corporate crisis. There was a lot of negative media attention. There were a lot of uh, news stories or, or public attention to to First Nations in control of a very significant business and on on the brink of failure. Um, so there was a lot of pressure that way, that this was this was something that uh, um, the public through through the media and the news stories it was building. So we thought let's let's face this. We we can't hide from it. We can't stick our head in the sand. Um, we are in crisis. Things were reported, so let's let's face the music and let's accept that responsibility and let's talk about what we are doing to address the shortcomings of, of the business, what we're doing to strengthen the internal controls, how we're going to not only stabilize the business, but move forward and build the business. And again, the underlying factor wasn't always just, okay, corporate crisis, we got to save our license. For me, it was about the people. So being the general manager of the casino in Yorkton, we had a staff of, of about 240 people at the time. And I spent a lot of time just getting to know our people. I would spend hours in the break room. I would spend hours in our surveillance room. I would spend hours overnight when the casino was closed at, at 2 a.m. I would sit and, and get to know the drop team who would come in and clear all the cash from the, the slot machines, clear all the, the boxes, cash boxes from the tables. Uh, and they would go into account room in the, in the bank. And they had kind of that night night shift or graveyard shift well, I would spend graveyards at the casino just to get to know everybody. And every one of those staff members in Yorkton, I got to know them by their first name. I got to know a little bit about their families and how this job 
was impacting them, how this job was uh, um, such a good thing for not only themselves, but in many cases, their, their families, and it gave them stability. But what I saw was it also gave them confidence. It gave them an open door and a supportive employer and a supportive work environment. And it was the people. It was the people that uh, really was the underlying um, push for, for me to, we've got to protect this industry. We've got to do it. We've got to do it on the corporate level, the regulatory level, the government relations, the pub, public relations, so that we can save these jobs and these careers for, at that time, 1,200 employees across our, our four casinos. You mentioned being very principle-based, and I know you mentor, actually, a lot of people have came to you for mentorship, and whether it's formal or informal, people seem to flock to your lived experience as also you have these gems of wisdom about how to be. Um, And you mentioned principles being a big guiding factor, and I'm assuming that's what had you talking to these people. Can you allude, what are some of the big principles that guide your life? Well, I think I think we're still learning about that. And as as I mature and as I get more experience um, about organizations, about people, and how people influence uh, an organization, how an organization may influence people, um, some of the impacts of what a what a healthy organization um, can have on a community on a family, on an individual, or on society in that bigger picture. I, I think those, those things we're constantly learning, and I'm still learning. And I, I think we have to realize that we don't have all the answers, and we can't be afraid of the unknown, or we have to face and be aware of what we don't know and not see that as a deficiency or a fault. It's just that's that's the reality. Um, we need to have those relations so that whether it's internal or external, that we can find the knowledge or the experience or the tools or the methodologies or the equipment or the people that can bring that to us, that can uh, serve that purpose. And after my after my father passed away, his oldest brother was was my godfather. Um, my uncle Gilbert was was probably the most influential in in my young life because I was only eight years old when when my father passed away. So my godfather, Uncle Gilbert, he spent a lot of time. Um, making sure that I understood character, that I understood integrity, that I understood credibility. Um, but the biggest principle that that he instilled in me, and I still try to be mindful of it, but I think it's inherent now to, to the point where it com- comes out in my conduct and my interaction with, with people. Um, the biggest thing that he instilled in me was about dignity and the fact that every person on earth, every person in our lives 
has dignity. And it doesn't matter where you are in life. It doesn't matter if you're at the highest of society or if you're suffering the lowest of, of lows and having trouble functioning in life. It doesn't matter where you are in, in that, that social structure. Everybody has dignity and we cannot take somebody's dignity from them. Don't ever take another person's dignity. Always remember that that person, no matter where they are in life, they have dignity and to always respect that and to, if they needed it, to lift them up, support them. And sometimes it was just respect. So that was the most powerful um, principle that uh, as I was growing up, that was really instilled in me. Is it too much of a stretch to say that this dignity forms the background or the backbone of the peacemaking and the bridge building that you define yourself by? I I think it has a lot to do with it. Um, I I think I also believe that uh, uh, we have a path that uh, in, in our belief system as First Nations people, we have one speck in the universe that we aren't above any other part of creation, that everything has a spirit and that we are all interrelated. And I, I think that understanding and, and that teaching, which which has grounded my probably my last 15 years as, as File Hills Coppell Tribal Council, Tribal Chief and CEO, um, I really learned a lot from our our knowledge keepers, our elders, our life speakers. I've learned about language and ceremony. I've learned about our worldviews. And that that has only strengthened how I approach leadership, how I approach uh, business, how I approach life now, because I'm starting to learn that it's all interconnected and these are these are the foundations um, moving forward. I, I, I think those aspects you're still always learning. You're still always adding as as a role as a bridge builder or a peacemaker. I believe when I was 18 and got my Anishinaabe name, the elder and knowledge keeper that performed the naming ceremony, um, you know, he came out of the ceremony and his his eyes were glowing. And that's something that I've I've got a gift for is I can sense through somebody's eyes, mood or or where they're at or their sincerity or 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 their character. Um, his eyes were absolutely glowing. That's that's what I remember as an 18-year-old playing junior hockey in Manitoba. So this is an elder from Long Plain First Nation, a, a Soto or Anishinaabe. First Nation near Portage La Prairie. Uh, the elder has since passed on, but he had a profound impact on me that evening with the story that he shared and, and the vision that uh, um, the grandfathers and grandmothers and creators shared with him through that ceremony. And he said, oh, the, the grandfathers give you a, a great name. And then he explained to me, he said, they they showed, showed me blades of, of a hockey skate going through the ice but they they showed me something very 
very big after that. So I know that you, you're a hockey player, but that's, that's not what they showed me your life, your life's path and your gifts are. He held out his, his arms and he made a V. So his fingertips touching. He, he said, you know how geese fly south in the fall? And he made the motion of a V. And I said, yes, I was nodding. And he said, the grandfathers show, show you at the lead, at the, at the very start or the very head of that, that V. And, but it's not just a line forming the V. It's many, many, many people for as, as long as the eye can see. People are, are behind you. They're following you. He also explained a ribbon shirt for me that, that I try and honor and, and uh, always have with me for ceremony or, or for tr- traditional uh, purposes. Uh, he told me about uh, a rattle and the colors of it, the colors of the ribbon shirt. And he also explained uh, when it's time, um, you'll, you'll get this rattle, but they also show a very simple red bowl stone peace pipe for you. You'll, you'll get these when, when you're ready for them. So he explained that, but he said, uh, your name is Ogamau Kanuigan. And he said, you got to be careful with, with that name because you're a young, young man. You're only 18. Um, Ogamau, in our language, sometimes today it's used as chief. Now, some who are elected as chiefs may, may get upset that you're using this, this title as, as chief in your name. So, in our old ways, in our traditional ways, Ogamau was more like a king. And in our structures and traditions, it, it was it was more like a king, not like a chief of the Indian Act or, or the election system of, of today. So use the term king. Kanuagin means eagle feather. So your your name, Ogamau Kanuagin, translated to English. King Eagle Feather, and he was eyes were glowing, and he was smiling, and just the glow from his eyes is is what I really, really remember from from that day many years ago, or that evening many years ago, and so that always guides me as well. It's not always present in my mind because I've made mistakes and and I've I've done some things that don't always hold up to to that promise or, or to that expectation or that responsibility that that uh, I have but it's always a grounding point and point for for me uh, internally and as I move through life thank you for sharing that story Ed I think about myself at 18 I was tyrannical Ed I don't know if I could have handled such an image given to me and such a possibility to live into and how do you I mean how do you take a big vision of who you are as your best self and grounded in the live action of you're still a human and a teenager with all the, I don't know, maybe you're more of a saint than I, but all the teenager inclinations and weave it into a career of business. How have you done that? I think the, uh, the responsibility, while it, it may be intimidating or if I sat and dwelled on it for a long time, maybe I would have talked myself out of it. And, but I just felt that that's, that's my calling. That's, I didn't understand the depth 
of that ceremony and the purpose of, of my name and my purpose as, as an individual or as a person right at that moment. But I started to just believe that there is a path, that there is a role for me. And again, I go back to uh, my intro and, and my mom and my dad. I also had two grandmothers who were also very instrumental in shaping me into the person that I am. So those foundations, um, I, I think what my mom and my grandmothers taught me were the practical realities, but they also taught me uh, self-confidence and to believe in yourself and believe in your abilities and to always have that inner strength. What I, what I learned from my dad was, was some of the, uh, the leadership traits in, in terms of patience and seeking the counsel of the elders, of the knowledge keepers, respecting um, who we are as First Nations people, and believing that uh, First Nations pe people have intrinsic worth and intrinsic value to offer in reciprocity with society or mainstream public around us. Those things sort of stack up. And you're, you're, the name that, that I had as a, as a young person, already I was starting to experience my role in terms of a leader and a future leader. Um, and I accepted that responsibility. And I, I didn't always think deeply about it, but I just knew inside me that there was a role for me. And I also, my, my father, my late, my late dad, he was my hero. So I always wanted to um, live up to his good name, to live up to what was important to, to him, to live up to how people, the community saw him. And they saw him as a great leader, as a servant leader, as a humble leader. So I always wanted to, to live up to not only his model or, or image, but also make sure that my mom was also proud of me. So those things were constantly in my heart and in my subconscious, pushing me forward and, and maybe uh, keeping me um, slightly out of trouble <laughs> here and there as a teenager. But it was that sense of responsibility that um, was instilled in me through, along the way and in many different forms. Can you share as you talk about your mo mother, your first day of kindergarten? Because I think it's such a powerful story when you shared that with me of both your mother's love and the real fear of letting you go into a world that wasn't kind and caring and didn't see your intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. So early in life, um, I was probably almost 18 months when my older brother, Jimmy, died in a tragic accident at grandma's house on, on the reserve. And uh, uh, so I didn't understand it as, as, a, as a baby. And even as a, as a young person growing up, it took me a long time to understand that grief and the impact of trauma of losing a young child and, and what that would would feel like i i still can't comprehend what it what it feels like because it hasn't happened to me and i haven't had to live through it but being a parent i i can understand if if one of my children were were to be taken 
suddenly like that. So I, I believe that I was the benefactor of both of my parents' love. I was, I had an older sister and, and there were two of us at, at that time that remained in the family. So um, I was the only boy or, or male in, in the family or of the siblings. So I, I believe that's sort of laid the circumstances of getting even more love and attention, but also that veil of protection. And I, I think there wasn't uh, many moments in my early life after my older brother passed away where I wasn't within my my mom, especially my mom, spending a lot of time with my mom, but where I wasn't within somebody's sight lines and kind of that overprotectiveness. But it also meant that um, some of the grief and, and trauma of parents, they put extra love and care and attention into into the kids um, that were still there. And it, it just may, makes you feel and appreciate the, the children that, that are still with you. And, and you kind of get that extra love and care and attention. So I, I think that was important. And by the time kindergarten rolled around, I was five years old and I wanted to go to school. My dad was was recently um, elected as, as a vice chief of the federation, the FSI back in the days in, in the mid seventies. And we moved to Saskatoon from Regina. I wasn't a school age yet, but I really wanted to go to school. So I remember being put into uh, nursery school and for half days, uh, three days a week. And I just thought that was, that was the best thing. Like that was amazing. I was living my best life as a four year old <laughs> going to school. But when it came time to, to go to kindergarten, half days uh, every day of the week, we lived in Saskatoon. We lived in, in what would be considered for, for that time an affluent area. Um, so there wasn't a lot of First Nations people living in the urban environments yet. That was starting to happen. The out-migration from the reserves into urban environments in Saskatchewan was was definitely underway in, in the 70s. But in our neighborhood and certainly in our school, um, there weren't going to be many First Nations. In fact, St. Paul School in Saskatoon, there was another sister and brother First Nation combo um, from Lac Lorange. They were they were last name Cook. Mm-hmm. They were the only other two First Nations children uh, in, in probably a school of a couple hundred students. It was elementary grade one to eight. It was a French immersion school as well. And my mother knew that uh, growing up in the city was going to be a challenge simply because there weren't a lot of First Nations people going to uh, going to school where I was going to be going to school. There weren't a lot of First Nations people in the city. Social culture hadn't uh, adapted and, and matured to the point of, of inclusion um, in, in the mid-70s. So she knew um, that there was going to be a lot of prejudiced attitudes, uh, a lot of racism. And uh, she wanted to make sure that I understood that uh, no matter what, I was going to face racism. And my first day of kindergarten before she let me out the door. So, you know, looking back, it was it was probably a, a huge deal for her to let me out of her sight to begin with. 
and it was about a six and a half block walk to uh, to school. So my sister and and I we walked to school every day, and uh, so even that was difficult for my mom. But I remember her so vividly that day, getting down on on her knees so that she was eye level with me, grabbing my grabbing me by the shoulder out outside of my shoulders and looking into my eyes and, and telling me they're going to call you names. They're going to be mean to you. They're going to tell you that you're not as good as them. They're going to do a lot of bad things to you, but I want you to know that you're just as good as they are. You're just as smart as they are. In fact, my son, you're better than them. You're smarter than them. And don't let, don't listen to them when they're mean to you like that. And that was, again, as a five-year-old, you, you don't understand the gravity of that, but that has sort of kept me that inner strength and that inner confidence, that self-confidence she instilled in me leading up to that day. But that day was kind of that pinnacle of where I remember that, that it made a lasting impression on me. And I carry that forward and and that belief and that self-confidence, that inner strength, that resilience um, she instilled in me. Um, that's probably the most uh, impactful thing that my mom could have ever done for me. Well, Ed, thank you for sharing that. My As I hear this, my heart just bleeds for both you, I can imagine young you, not really understanding the words, but understanding the words and your mom knowing full well what she was sending her boy to. And the fact that you took, I'm using your word dignity, but it seems like that kind of bath in this is what it means to believe in yourself that you've carried your whole way through. I, I want to ask, you've seen the landscape in Saskatchewan and change dramatically. I would say in your coming of age through your early career to your work as a tribal council chief, what do you think the key facets of this evolution has been? Actually, let's track this back. How have you seen the landscape change? And I can speak from even when I moved to Saskatchewan, I'll say in 2009, and I'm not saying Alberta isn't doesn't have racism. It didn't feel as overt, though, in Alberta as when I moved to Saskatchewan, the racism that was prevalent and seemed largely accepted in 2009. And since then, I've seen people awakening. I've seen people changing. And it seems like the landscape, we've still got a long way to go, but is evolving. What are you seeing as you really have lived it and been both a bridge builder between the two worlds, as well as a way shower for the individuals that didn't have the same upbringing as yourself? I, I think... Saskatchewan as as a province, as a society, has made progress. In my lifetime, I've seen tremendous change. I've seen people accept that the differences. I've seen inclusive attitude become more prevalent. I have seen an openness to understanding First Nations and Métis people and our histories and, and our cultures. Um, the way we see the world, our, our value system. Um, I, I see an appreciation developing for 
for those differences, but there is still so much more that can be done. There's still uh, a lot of progress to be made because growing up in, in Saskatchewan and spending a couple years living in Winnipeg and playing junior hockey in Manitoba, I, I would also include Alberta, the three uh, prairie provinces. I, I think there there are certainly streams of racism and a lack of acceptance for anything but kind of that Western ideology or what's what's known as Canadian uh, social fabric, Canadian cultural fabric. Um, it hasn't uh, hasn't grown to to the point to be inclusive and respectful. I, I see progress. I see as uh, immigration continues to populate uh, Canada and Saskatchewan with with uh, kind of the non-Anglo-Saxon aspects of, of the early history, and we see people of color from from around the world immigrating to. Canada and to Saskatchewan, you, you start to see that changing. But the expectation that uh, the dominant society or, or that dominant public viewpoint be what everybody ascribes to or changes their their own uh, history and and uh, culture to is is not productive. It's counterproductive. It it's divisive. It creates that uh, um, sense of, of multiple sides because there, there's multiple groups in this, racial groups and cultural groups and different heritage and belief systems. And I, I really think that uh, there's a long way to go. And the last 15 years in the role at the Tribal Council has um, placed me in, in a place of, of learning and trying to be a good listener and connecting back to my cultural identity as a First Nations person from Little Black Bear, Cree and Assiniboine nations. My mom is from Pasqua First Nation and her lineage is, is Anishinaabe or Soto. So I've got that background, that teaching and both of my parents were residential school survivors from Labrette or the Coppell Indian Residential School. So they had that history and, and trauma um, with them, but they also were resilient and, and they were they were great parents, but they also realized that uh, um, they, they saw a lot of challenge and they saw a lot of this uh, racism and prejudiced behavior, but believed in, in us or believed in our, our people and, and our, our culture. That, that were different. So what I've learned in the last 15 years is that identity. Uh, so there's there's a treaty principle expressed in Cree, Miskasuin, and that's finding one's sense of origin or, or one sense of identity. And and I think that, that that treaty principle means so much to me in terms of there's a lot of work that I have to do as a person, um, a leader, but I've got to tr do what I need to do to learn the culture, learn the history, learn the protocols, learn the foundations of, of the values, learn the traditional teachings. And the language is, is the underpinning of, of culture. The language in, in Cree or, or Nakoda or Anishinaabe um, 
it's so different is, is what I'm learning than English language. So my first language is English. So my brain thinks in English terms, but being open and, and allowing yourself to learn, you're, it really demonstrates that people can change and learning something new, something uh, that's totally different, I, I think is, is a challenge, but it's also there's, there's, there's rewards at, at the end of that. And what, what it is showing me is an appreciation for two divergent worldviews, two mm. different histories, two different uh, belief systems, two different uh, ontologies or, or ways of being and how that uh, is reflected in today's multicultural society in Saskatchewan. That's where I think there's opportunity that we, we can um, get to know each other better. We can understand each other. And for over 150 years of Indian Act law and policy in Canada, um, it's always been such a one-way street. It's always been a, uh, a process of assimilation or uh, attempted assimilation. So residential schools, the 60s scoop, uh, land dispossession, uh, land claims, there, there is still so much to unpack and so many bridges to, to build. And we don't start um, know where to build these bridges until we have that two-way street, that reciprocity of sharing knowledge systems, getting to know one another, knowing the histories, knowing the culture, knowing where we're different, knowing why we're different, knowing how to maybe build that bridge in between those two divergent uh, aspects and, and structures and systems and, and societies. Understanding that I think is one of my gifts and maybe one of my responsibilities as a peacemaker, as a diplomat, as somebody who is trained and has grown up in the Western ideology and mainstream Canada, Saskatchewan, trained in, in business school, operating in business, and then reconnecting to my, my Indigenous identity and understanding that and learning or relearning and re recapturing that, reigniting that, that spirit inside me. I think that's where I'll have that, uh, that gift or, or that experience to build bridges, to um, share histories and, and create that understanding, uh, but also come with uh, uh, experienced knowledge or policy areas. Public policy in Canada and Saskatchewan uh, leaves so much to be uh, uh, desired when, when, it, when you look at outcomes uh, and policy that's intended to, to be equal, yet in its application, in its design, in its structure is far from equal uh, to Indigenous people or maybe uh, minority groups because it doesn't come from a place of inclusion. It doesn't come from that uh, respect or reciprocal or coexistence uh, lens. It, it comes from a dominant worldview being imposed as the only way. So if we're going to really build effective policy 
uh, in this country, we we need to understand those what 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 builds a society, what what is what what does coexistence look like as promised under under treaty? What does reciprocity and respect look like? What does making space for everybody look like? When you look at socioeconomic human development index factors of quality of life, of living standards, and you look at educational achievement, you look at health outcomes, you look at the economic standing or livelihood aspects of Indigenous people in Canada on reserve versus the, the public, there's such a disparity, there's such a gap that's created. And it is um, an outcome of failed and ineffective public policy. So we have to understand each other. We have to um, make the circle large enough. We have to make sure that everybody has a voice. We have to have that mutual respect. We have to make it more than a one-way street. When we can bring the strengths of what every culture, every worldview can bring to the table, and we take those strengths and we braid them together. Those strands, individual strands on, onto themselves may not be the strongest. Uh, so when we braid them together, that braid becomes stronger. When we're braiding ideologies together, when we're braiding strengths together, uh, when we're braiding differences together, those differences help cover many different angles that maybe one side hasn't covered. When, when we believe that we all bring intrinsic worth and value to, to the table and we place that at, at the center and we all accept that, that we're all open-minded to it, that's when we'll be able to um, strengthen each other. That's when true public policy will, will emerge. That's where some of the gaps in, in the measures will start to close. And I, I think that's what will make effective public policy. It's got to be more inclusive. There's about a thousand things I would love to unpack there. And I want to ask you, but I also want to be cognizant of time. And so if we're getting close to the end here and we're touching on weaving Western ideology with Indigenous ideology, as well as um, Canada's getting tons of people from all over the world coming, I'm interested in, I think we've got a thousand examples of how we've done this poorly. And I, when I talk to people about what's possible in the future, what I hear is like, I can't even imagine what good looks like can't even imagine how the world would be different. And if I think about the gift of the eagle and King Eagle Feather, vision is one of the eagle's gifts. And in a lot of ways, if we follow the path of your career, you've been able to see just a little bit further as to what's next and bring people with you on that journey in ways that harness their gifts, inspire action and move forward. And when you and I were talking in one of our sessions, you mentioned a little bit of a glimpse of what the future could look like. And I know I was just silent in that moment because it was so beautiful. I actually didn't have a lot to say. And I'm wondering if you can share, knowing that we might not get there in your lifetime or my lifetime, if we're successful at braiding these paradigms, at learning from each other, is making the circle of inclusion bigger, 
as baking some of these principles, which are so fundamental, really basic human dignity. What might the future look like? I, I think as Indigenous people and our experience and the cultural genocide that uh, um, when we look back and we assess where we've been as a society, as Indigenous people, but also as, as Canadians, uh, the colonial uh, experience and what that means worldwide and to Indigenous groups and Indigenous peoples around the world. We, we look at uh, what our treaty forefathers um, put in place for us in terms of the future and that forward thinking, the uh, oral histories that, that we have are, are rich, the natural law frameworks that, that uh, are our foundation are foundations that will be our recipe for moving forward, that they will be that, that foundation or that bedrock for us as a people moving forward. And we have to, if we're going to coexist, if we're going to share, we have work to do on how we recover from the history, from the assimilation practice, from the intergenerational trauma from residential schools and from being dispossessed of land, from, from 150 years plus of the Indian Act, which is still on, on the laws of, of Canada. And when, when we hear the federal government talk about a nation-to-nation -nation relationship, when we look at our own treaty relationship in treaty number four between our nations and the crown and right of uh, the queen, we also have positive obligations. We have responsibilities under our natural laws. We have conduct expectations. We have livelihood expectation. We have justice. We have health. We have knowledge systems. We have everything that it takes to make up a society. We've lived it for thousands and thousands of years, and it was almost stolen from us. It was almost taken from us by force, by an abuse of authority, by an abuse of lawmaking and law enforcement that wasn't of our making that we don't, we didn't understand that that whole history, I, I think is, is what has had that profound negative impact on us. So it's, it's, uh, we're, we're starting from, from a place of deficit. We're starting from a place of where we need to recover. We need to reconnect with our, I, our identity and our, our teachings, our conduct, our, our, uh, what we're compelled to, to do as Indigenous people, environment. So we are at, at a place where we have positive obligations and responsibilities as a party to treaty in this nation. And are we doing what we need to do as the spirit and intent of our treaty forefathers had set out. So there's work to do. 
instead of pointing the finger at the Indian Act, its residential schools, um, at the conduct of, of governments, at poor public policy, um, th- those are definite factors. But if we focus on how we build ourselves back up, how we rebuild our nations, how we put in place our self-determination and our rights to self-government. Um, there's, there's a body of research that started with the Harvard Project on American Indian Economic Development in 1987. And it's now known as nation building. And it is global in its application, but also in, in its research. It's a body of research that continues to grow across the world with Indigenous people. And the pillars of nation building that we need to uh, embrace to move forward, to rebuild our nationhood status, to rebuild our societies, to rebuild our effective function as self-governing people. Um, the The pillars of nation building are practical sovereignty or practical jurisdiction. What's underneath our control? What is our jurisdiction for our lands, our citizenship, our laws, our justice system, our knowledge, education, our health systems, our rules of society, our infrastructure, housing, water, all of that is, is uh, we need to take control of our own lives. So that's practical sovereignty or practical jurisdiction as, as one of the first pillars. Next is capable institutions. So making sure that we understand how to govern ourselves, how to build institutions in education, in healthcare, in, in business, uh, in social constructs that uh, really represent and reflect who we are as Indigenous people, but understanding how to separate the uh, business from the politics and that political structure. Um, but we have to build capable institutions with good governance. Cultural match is the next foundation. And for, for me, this, this one shines the, the brightest. We have to reconnect with our own Indigenous identity, who we are as people. And then we have to reflect that in our institution building, reflect that in our laws and, and what works for our, our communities and our society. The, the final two pillars are, are kind of combined. It's long-term strategic orientation. So a common principle of Indigenous people around the world is to have that long-term um, view in mind several generations ahead. My children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my great-great-grandchildren's future. But you also um, have to know your history and where you come from. So you have to know the generations behind and, and how you move forward. So that was, that was a big part of our oral societies and, and histories um, was making sure that you knew where you come from, where, where you had been, what the basis was, but that in your decisions today, you're going to impact uh, the future generation. So you have an obligation to um, build and develop and leave behind for those yet to come uh, a good place so that they can have a good life. So that long-term strategic orientation. So that means there's a lot of change because assimilation 
and 150 years, hundreds of years of, of colonialism and that impact on, on us as Indigenous people, it's going to take leadership to really tie all those four pillars together. But when, when we look at the amount of change that is required to get our Indigenous people rebuilt and back to that, that stature, that pride, that confidence, that belief, but also an effective functioning government that serves our collective, that serves our citizens' needs. And if we're providing those essential services that, that our people need and we're doing that well, then we're in a place of being able to enter into true nation-to-nation -nation relations with the uh, crown and right of Canada, the crown and right of Saskatchewan. So there's so much there, so much work to be done. But if we look in our nations back, if we reflect that in, in the mirror of where we need to go, it starts with us and we have to reclaim that and build back out and then build those bridges and build those good relations. Ed, thank you. And thank you for being on the podcast today. I always leave our conversations thinking about my responsibilities in the world. What's mine to do? What's the collective to do? And what part do I play in this? And when I think about your life's work, I, I once heard somebody speak, and I can't remember who says this, that um, a prayer isn't a sedentary activity. A prayer is an action in motion. And when I think about what you've done with your career, it's like this prayer and action of change and force in this quiet storm that's moving through your leadership, through your alignment to your principles and your values, painting that way. And it it really is how you describe that vision of King Eagle Feather. So thank you for sharing your story with me and for being so influential in my own life. Well, thank you for having me. And it was a pleasure to, to share. And we need, we need all hands on deck if we're going to build a, a brighter, more inclusive collective society in the place known as Canada. Mm -hmm.